my name is Tim. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Let me start the timer. Um, they say the ism of alcoholism stands for incredibly short memory, and you were kind enough to have me here four years ago, and you've forgotten what it was like, so here I am again. <laughs> Uh, the greatest service you're doing is uh, sparing London uh, from having to listen to me for three weeks. So, very good. Well done. Uh, thank you to the organisers and the hosts. This has been a wonderful event so far, and I'm enjoying myself enormously. Um, my sponsor is fond of saying that sobriety is like sex. If you're not enjoying it, you're doing something wrong. I'm informed that's an accurate metaphor. I, w I of course, wouldn't know. <laughs> My last drink of alcohol was on the 24th of July, 1993. Uh, to save people getting tangled up in mathematics, I was 21 at the time, almost 22, and I'm 52 now. Uh, my home group is the Brick Lane Big Book Study in London. It wasn't my home group for a few years, and then it became my home group again. So everyone's made up. <laughs> Very good. Sometimes you have to leave people to run things for a while and, and not even be visible on the sidelines, peering over their shoulder to make sure they're doing it right. You just have to just leave the continent for a while. Is very good. Well, if you started a group after 10 years, just leave, and then you can come back later. So. I've come a very long way uh, to do a particular job, which is to talk about step six and seven. So I'm gonna get straight in, really, with step six and seven. However, uh, the steps are not individually separable from the whole arc of the steps. So, uh, pardon me, I'm not going to apologize, but I shall say pardon me for talking about some of the other steps which people have already spoken eloquently on and will indeed speak eloquently on throughout the remainder of the weekend. But steps six and seven don't make sense unless you understand what the context is. And the context is that, well, first of all, uh, uh, I'm an alcoholic and what that means. Uh, it doesn't mean anything very dramatic. There are a couple of nasty little facts which make up my alcoholism. The very dramatic stories, I have them. Um, but I'm not gonna give a step one pitch. I'm gonna go straight to the core. What, what is my alcoholism? Both of these nasty little facts can be illustrated with one small, banal story from, ooh, around 1991. It's lookable up uh, because there was something that happened on the day in question. If anyone remembers the 1980s, there was a very, very good American television show called 30 Something, which I was very fond of. Someone explained to the children afterwards what that was and why it was so good. And I didn't connect with a lot of people when I was drinking. I didn't connect with a lot of people before I drank. But this show I connected with, and it was the last episode 
of the last series was going to be on television that night. And I was in central London, I lived in London. All I had to do was get on the tube, go home and watch it. And a little voice said, but you can't do that, you have to drink. Um, I knew that when I drank, I couldn't enjoy anything. I couldn't be present for anything. I was on a mission. And I had a drink and thought, well, I've still got 45 minutes before I have to get on the train. And it was with heavy heart I continued to drink that evening, wandering from bar to bar, thinking I would much rather be at home watching the last ever episode of my favorite ever television show, which is literally the only thing I can connect with in my life right now. But here I am. My drinking did not stem from a desire to drink. Last ever episode of my favorite ever television show, which is literally the only, but enjoyment is a very difficult word. What does enjoy mean? You enjoy someone's company, anything I can connect with in my life right now. But here I am. My different things. Enjoy drink, what does that mean? The greatest enjoyment was the relief of the compulsion to drink being off my back for a few minutes. That was the great enjoyment of the strain of not drinking. Um, I'm going to read something. As I'm reading it, see if you can guess who it is that wrote this or about whom this is written. During one of the many times he was hospitalized for alcohol abuse, he experienced what he termed a sort of religious conversion. According to his biographer, he experienced a sudden and radical shift from a belief in a transcendent God to a belief in a God who cared for the individual fates of human beings and who even interceded for them. If you've been in AA for a while, you'll recognize that very readily as a description of Bill W's spiritual experience, except it's not. It's what happened to an American poet called John Berryman who was born in 1914, uh, committed suicide by jumping off a bridge in 1972 in Minneapolis. Um, he never got permanently sober, but he'd had a spiritual experience. Having a spiritual experience is not enough. There are three parts to step 12. You have a spiritual experience and then you carry this message to other alcoholics, and then you practice these principles in all your affairs. That'll do it. Um, something that John Berriman wrote uh, is this. He stared at ruin. Ruin stared straight back. Their paths crossed, and once they crossed in jail, they crossed in bed, and over an unsigned letter. We don't know if he wrote it or received it. 
and over an unsigned letter their eyes met. And in an Asian city, directionless and lurchy at two and three, or trembling to a telephone's fresh threat. That's the description of my drinking. Directionless and lurchy. As I lurched down the road and saw people 50 feet away from me cross the road so they wouldn't have to cross me on the pavement. Directionless and lurchy describes not just how I walked when I was drunk, which I was most of the time for years, but it describes my whole life. I had no, I, I had no notion that a life could have a direction. Once drink existed, the only direction is towards the pub. That was it and lurchy. Wherever I was, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be somewhere else, so I would lurch somewhere else. I would lurch from so-called relationship to what they, they weren't relationships. People come into AA with relationship problems. I came into AA with entanglement problems, and there is a difference. Uh, to have a relationship, one has to be present, and I wasn't present, I was entangled. But anyway, the two nasty facts of my alcoholism, number one, when I start to drink, I literally may never stop. If I were to drink tonight, I might never stop. Therefore, the most important thing in my life is that I never have another alcoholic drink and that forever starts now. Second fact, I'm going to drink. Drinking again is the rule, not the exception. In London, when I got sober, there were 500 or so AA groups. Now there are a thousand or so. Um, of course, many of the people who are in those groups in 1993 have, many have died sober because they were old. Uh, <laughs> or not, but they died sober. Uh, London is very transitory. Some of them may indeed be in Auckland. Uh, people retire to the countryside. The average sobriety length in the countryside is much higher in the UK than it is in the inner cities. I live in the middle of London. But that doesn't explain why when I go to an AA meeting in London, it's rare to meet someone else who is 30 years sober. Where are the rest of them? So you look around the room today in 30 years' time for those who are still lucky enough to be still alive, how many will still be sober? That's a downer. Except, <laughs> it is my firm belief that whether or not one drinks again is not part of a cosmic lottery, that there is a very simple set of procedures which, if followed, as Bill says, will expel the, exception, the obsession to drink. Um, the only way I could drink again would be, well, there are two conditions that would have to be met. The first one, the notion of drinking would have to pop into my mind. If the notion of drinking doesn't pop into my mind, I won't drink. The second thing that would have to happen is I would have to obey that notion. I would have to obey that instruction. Now, 
there are people who will say, you know, for 10 years, for 15 years, for however many years, I haven't had a thought of a drink. Well, good for you. <laughs> That's very nice. I have funny old thoughts all the time, and not just about drinking, about some other neat stuff. The restoration to sanity, I believe, is not a restoration to a state where every thought that I have is rational and reasonable and sane. The sanity is living right regardless of what my mind is telling me. Therefore, my mind or my, a part of my wrong mind let's call it my wrong mind, must be dethroned. And to be dethroned, something else needs to be placed in the throne. Which is why there is no middle-of-the-road solution. There is no place on the throne for two emperors. I'm going to serve one or the other. I'm going to serve my wrong mind, or I'm going to serve the higher power. Um, to... Stay sober to do the simple little thing, the simple task of not having a drink for the rest of my life, therefore requires me to place myself in the care of God. Fine, that sounds all very nice. God's going to look after me. How marvelous. And then the program says, wait a minute. To activate that care, you're going to have to do something in return. Uh, and, and with step three, again, it sounds lovely to turn my will and life over to God as though uh, the Christmas presents are going to start tumbling down the chimney into my living room. The parking spaces will open up. Things will go my way because I'm acting well. Well, they might. My experience is that when you act well, things do on average go better. People treat one better. Uh, but boy, are things going to happen. If you stay sober, things are going to happen, which are extremely disagreeable. Uh, one isn't necessarily going to be successful. Um, what that relationship with God requires uh, is literally to turn my will and life over to God, which means I don't have any will and life left. Not an attractive prospect unless you really, really don't want to die of alcoholism. And in July 1993, I decided I wanted the dignity of never being arrested at 12 o'clock in the afternoon ever again, at least not for being drunk and disorderly. I would note I still haven't been arrested at 12 in the afternoon for anything else or indeed at any other time. But all I wanted to be was sober. I gave up my life at that point. I, I mean, I don't know about you, I was done at the age of 11. I looked at the world and thought, you can keep it. And I found a book in the library by a Ukrainian author, who's a, who's a, a, a satirist and a comic writer called Zoschenko, who 
wrote a book called Before Sunrise, which was his investigation into why he was so depressed and whether this depression arose from something before his birth, in other words, before sunrise. I, I read this at 11 because I was looking for something other than the world, something beyond. Um, in alcohol, I never found it. I found the promise of it, of another realm, of another way of being. And occasionally there were glimpses of it. And today, I do have it. And there's a, a wonderful line, if I can find it. I'm going to dispense with my glasses completely or I won't be able to read any of these, which means you're just a beautiful blur right now. I, I, <laughs> I have to navigate by the sense of smell only. Um, there, there, there is a, a, an Italian hip-hop artist called Rancore, and if you like Italian hip-hop, you'll like him very much, and if you don't, you won't. Uh, R-A-N-C-O-R-E, if anyone's taking notes. Uh, and there's a song called Eden, or Eden in Italian, and I won't um, torment you with the, the Italian, but he says this, uh, like Eden before the fall, as before, when everything was unified, when the sky was infinite, when there was a celebration and no one needed an invitation. That's how I feel when I'm sitting in a room on my own, on a chair, doing nothing. I feel like I'm at the party I was always looking for. I'm totally fine on my own. Uh, my other half, um, who literally has better things to do than be here today. <laughs> we, th we can't understand why people don't find us fascinating, but um, <laughs> we find ourselves fascinating. The non-alcoholics, well, you just have to ask them. Um, you, if you catch them in an unguarded moment, they'll tell you. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you. Uh, one thing, he's been out to dinner with a number of us alcoholics on a number of occasions, and once he described what it was like being at dinner <laughs> with alcoholics, who in meetings described themselves as recovered <laughs> alcoholics. Uh, they're taking a step up. Uh, <laughs> he said it's like being in a completely empty field, and in the field there are these wells and at the bottom of each well is a frog gribbiting to itself. <laughs> so you want to know why he's not here. He's got better things to do. But we're very glad he's come along this time. Why did I mention him? I have apps. Oh, I know. Because he walks to work. And I asked him one day, this was 20 years, 19 years ago. I said, what do you think about when you're walking to work? And he said, nothing. Now, that wasn't a defensive nothing. It was a literally nothing. That's his natural state. Thoughts will float across his mind. 
but he won't really pay them much attention unless he wants to or needs to engage in them. And I have to say, after a lot of work, a lot of work in AA, that's how I feel a lot of the time. Um, I used to think I was lonely, uh, and I wasn't. What I was was trapped inside a noisy echo chamber of my own mind, and my belief was I needed other people to connect with to be okay. It turns out I can feel connected regardless of whether or not there is someone in my room or someone in my life. I can talk to people without using words, which is much more efficient. So that's the other end of this. When I place myself in step 12, three things happen. The first thing is I wake up in step 12. Now, I'm sure if you went downtown with a clipboard and some paper and some pens and interviewed people and asked the simple question, have you had a spiritual awakening? Almost no one would say yes. And if anyone did, you would back away from them quite quickly, <laughs> in all likelihood. It's a very rare thing. It's a very unusual thing. That state of having had a spiritual awakening rather implies that, well, before that, you've been asleep. So everyone's asleep, apparently, or almost everyone is asleep. Um, you think waking up is going to be joining the party, and it's not, it's leaving the party. In the matrix, the real world is real and preferable, but it ain't comfortable. Uh, there's the chap in the matrix who, would, who knows that it's all uh, a computer simulation that they're living in, but he enjoys the taste of the steak, so he stays. So waking up, this is the difficult thing. I've got to still stay in the world even though I've woken up and maintain compassion um, the second thing is to help other people wake up so they don't have to die of alcoholism either. The third thing is to practice these principle, principles in all my affairs. I'll, I'm going to say a tiny thing about that. Um, my day is very straightforward. I get up at around quarter past six. Uh, I leave for work at 6.30. I'm in the office at 6.45, I do a 20-minute morning meditation meeting online with 130 of my closest friends. <laughs> um, and we do that for 20 minutes. It's a big book reading, followed by another spiritual reading, followed by two minutes of silent meditation, followed by sharing picked by the host. No free-for-all. And then by, and w when we get to two minutes sharing, you're done. And then 20 past seven, we go off and start our days. And my day, I have a job, I have an occupation. I, it's not a career, I refuse to call it a career, but I have an occupation, a livelihood. 
Um, I do lots of service in AA and Al-Anon. Um, and I sponsor a lot of people. I look after some relatives of mine. Go home, look after the household, make the dinner. I have a, a little bit of time to myself. I go for a long run every day. But my day is very simple. I prepare for it, which is asking God, what shall I do today? It's my meditation. What shall I do today and what attitude should I adopt to those things? Um, I do literally what it says on pages 84 to 88 of the big book and it's very simple and it's what suits me very well. I do make use of spiritual books as well. And then I have to get on with the day. And there is nothing fancy or dramatic or exciting about any of the individual things. I wanted very much, when I was younger, for even many years into sobriety, to be part of the inner circle. The inner circle in the world, the people with the money, the power, the influence, who were barricaded up so high on the mountain that the floods could never get them. That was where I wanted to be. And I joined AA, or went deeper into AA, and I thought I discerned inner circles in AA. There are no inner circles in AA. Or maybe they are, but they're not what they seem to be. C.S. Lewis writes about this phenomenon of the chase after and the preoccupation with the inner circle, and it's chilling. But he says a wonderful thing. If I can find it, it'll be a miracle. It's not there, is it? Here. The quest for the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. But if you break it, a surprising result will follow. If, in your working hours, you make the work your end, you will presently find yourself, all unawares, inside the only circle in your profession that really matters. You will be one of the sound craftsmen, and other sound craftsmen will know it. So my job when I'm sponsoring people, I spend a lot of hours every day sponsoring people, um, is to get it right. It, when I work very, very closely with people on inventory, on the step four, I work very closely with people on step eight, on preparing for step nine, on how to handle every possible situation which is thrown at you by your own sponsees. And the word painstaking comes to mind. It's very easy to fob sponsees off with a little spiritual quip. It takes real work to unpick tangled thinking, uh, word by word by word. But it's worth it. When you see someone starting to think clearly and see clearly, I've done a lot of service in the AA service structure. Uh, uh, in, we have an idiosyncratic structure in Great Britain. By the way, it's not UK AA, it's Great Britain AA. So the north of Ireland or Northern Ireland, there's a difference. 
um, is part of Irish AA. So I've done service in Great Britain AA, and I've done it at intergroup and at region and at national level on the Armed Services Subcommittee and other subcommittees and at conference. And to do that well, my mind needs to be completely clear. It needs to be clear of my own garbage, of my own reactions. I need to be able to assess situations instantly and know precisely what to say and do. Not because I'm devising what to say and do, but because if there is clarity in my mind, if there's nothing going on, basically, you can just see what's there and you see what needs to be done. Um, to me, my path in AA has been one of slow, boring, meticulous work. But the result of that slow, boring, meticulous work, apart from the fact that, number one, I'm still sober, which is enough. If I'm still sober, I'm overpaid already. Uh, secondly, the fulminant mental illness with which I came into AA has gone and has stayed gone for a very long time. And I was placed in front of many professionals who were very good, but they couldn't handle what I was presenting with. I was uncooperative. Um, I've had occupations and I've been well, my time has been well used in those occupations. I'm not gonna judge what's been achieved, but it's been well used. I look back at the last 30 years and I'm very satisfied that the time has been well spent. It's really the only thing I'm given is the time. And my job today, what makes me so at peace is because I feel my time is being very well spent as directed by a power greater than myself. And it needn't be grand. I always thought that ambition consisted in finding a place of prominence or significance, as if I could judge what is significant. Um, there is a, a fallacy that you can measure significance with respect to the size of something. So, a, a, a man or a woman may be said to be important because uh, in British English we don't say it, but in American English they'll say, or you will say, uh, this person is worth, and then there'll be a, a dollar sign and an amount. Um, from God's point of view, it's, it's completely ridiculous to measure significance based on magnitude in the material realm. That is not the measure of significance. The most profoundly influential person in AA in London that I knew was a chap called Spiritual Paul who died far too early uh, with 20 years sobriety, I think, of pancreatic cancer. Uh, in his, well, I should think, early 60s, so very young. He could have had another you know, three, or, three or four decades even, but he didn't. But he lived in a little council house he drove a bus, a little mini bus, that was his occupation, and he went to his church, and he went to his AA meetings, and he's affected thousands of people's lives in ways which are only now becoming apparent. Uh, so I'm not interested in even judging what is significant. If I trust 
and this is so important to me. Um, for many years, drunk and sober, I felt that my life ought to have a purpose. And I felt very keenly the lack of purpose. My life is pointless, I would repeat endless, endlessly to myself, as I would literally hack at my arm with a knife in front of other people, for which I've made amends. Um, the interesting thing about that to me is that that's not taught by the world. The world does not teach that human life has a purpose. You look at nature, nature does not teach purpose. Tens of thousands of turtles are hatched on a beach and all but a handful are picked off by birds. What's the purpose in that? Children that die of parasitic diseases. Um, there is no, it, it, it's not taught by the world, it's not taught by the human world, it's not taught by the natural world, but it's there. And it is this that makes me believe there is a God. Because who planted that sense that I should have a purpose? Secondly, I have a great sense of fairness. I'm, I don't like the word offended. I dislike unfairness. And again, that's not the world, the material world of man does not teach fairness. And the natural world doesn't either. So where does that sense of fairness come from? It must come from beyond. It cannot come from anywhere else. And it's innate. It can't be eradicated. Those two senses, I don't believe, can be eradicated by any experience. There is nothing that can happen to you, I, I don't think, that can stop you being offended <laughs> at one's purpose not being discerned or achieved. So I conclude... Uh, I must have a purpose, and it must be discernible by me, or the universe is a mockery. And I don't think it is, because of the existence of those two virtues of purpose and fairness. Now, all I'm left with in step 11 is praying for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out. I therefore trust that when I'm folding laundry, I'm fulfilling the purpose for which God has placed me on the planet. When I'm helping a sponsee to untangle and state in clear, simple, plain language exactly what it was that the bugger did that they're writing about in the second column of their step four. State the facts, ma'am. Exactly what did they say or do? and it takes two weeks to finally get some truth out. It's painstaking, apparently irrelevant, trivial, but it's not. If that is what I'm guided to do in step 11, I must trust that that is God's will and that my purpose is thereby achieved. And I didn't make up this idea. There was a um, couple of very complicated <laughs> Central Europeans in the 1930s, and one was called um, uh, Ernst Kschenek and the other one was called Karl Krauss. And Kschenek is talking about Krauss. He says, 
at a time when people were generally decrying the Japanese bombardment of Shanghai, I met Karl Krauss struggling over one of his famous comma problems. Um, I edit for a living, so I identify with someone who struggles with comma problems. He said something like, I know that everything is futile when the house is burning, but I have to do this as long as it is at all possible. For if those who were supposed to look after commas had always made sure they were in the right place, Shanghai would not be burning. <laughs> if everyone was doing the job they were supposed to be doing, everything would be all right. So my job is to do the job that is placed before me. And this is what brings me, I'm sorry for the long framing, it's a large frame and a small picture. Um, <laughs> This brings me to step six and seven. Let's see what the words say. Now I need the glasses. <laughs> We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. So it's referring backwards to something. These so we already know what they are. It's whatever I wrote about in step four and disclosed in step five. So what are they? It's the sum total of what I've been up to when I've been under the lash of my wrong mind. So my character is not me, by the way. Um, I love what it's minor digression. I love what it says in the book about the stage and the actors on the stage. The actors are playing parts, but they are not the parts that they are playing. Um, the actor is different than the part. My character is the way in which I'm operating in the world. If who I am is spirit, that spirit can operate in different ways. I've operated in very different ways throughout my whole life. But I'm still me. When people recount stories of what I was like when I was seven, it's identifiably me. Couldn't have been anyone else who said what the small child says. I'm the same person, but my character is different. What is my character? My beliefs, my thinking, of my behavior, which are the only three levers or levers, if you're American, I can pull. What I believe, what I think, and what I do. Step four and five, catalog what I believe, what I think, and what I do. Why is this relevant? Why in step three can I not simply go and do God's will? There are many reasons, and I'm gonna list them. I'll probably miss some. The first one is when someone is trying to whisper instructions to you, if you're in the middle of a tornado or a cyclone, you probably won't hear anything. And the tornado and the cyclone describe not just how I showed up in other people's lives, but my own whirling thoughts. My mind had to be brought to heal. I haven't sorted out my mind. What I've done is recoiled with horror from it. 
in step six. So all I have to do in four and five is catalog. Once I've got the catalog, the catalog is well described by the phrase, all these defects of character. And it's, it's so interesting. It says, were ready, not became ready, not read a book and wrangled over this. Either you're ready or you're not. And if by the time you get to the end of step five, you're not recoiling with horror at the whole way you've been living. I, I don't know what, to, when Sponsy say, well, I'm not sure. I literally, I literally don't know what to say to them. And that's not a figure of speech. I will say, I don't know what to say to you. When you're entirely ready, come back. And some do and some don't. If the worked example is not enough, me being the school mom standing over them with a ruler is not going to help. And in Bill's story, it talks about an entirely new basis for living. All the way through the book, it, 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 this is not taking the existing way of living and tweaking it. It is discarding it entirely and adopting an entirely new way of living where the I that I was operating as simply ceases to exist. Of course it makes reappearances and it needs to have its head chopped off on a regular basis. But essentially it is not, I can't, I can't live the way the world lives. And the, the, the last part of step 12 is the most wonderful illustration of this. Practice these principles in all my affairs. Uh, I'm going to say a bizarre thing for someone who has a very long working week. I don't work. I go to an office and I practice principles. Thank God I don't have a career. If you've ever met someone with a career, they're so miserable <laughs> and tired and stressed and they care about all sorts of things I don't care about. <laughs> I can't... Ugh, and stuff... Alice Thomas Ellis is a second-rate Welsh author. Uh, she's second-rate despite being Welsh, not because she's Welsh. I should hasten. <laughs> she spent too long in England is all I can conclude. But she's, she said things of value are death to peace of mind. I had a sponsee once who would, uh, we've laughed about this, uh, she'd send her her daily plan every morning was the nine o'clock I'm gonna do this and ten o'clock I'm gonna do this eleven o'clock very well done very good and I noticed it's at ten o'clock dressing and I said what do you mean dressing well I was just getting ready and it was taking her an hour to get ready to go out into the world and we had a conversation about do you want to do you want to spend an hour on how you look every day for the rest of your life. Is that the, is that, do you think that? We had a very interesting conversation after that. Anything that is not vital has to go. That includes some people. That includes some meetings. That includes some activities. I went into a bookshop, a Christian bookshop in London 
29 years ago or so, I had too much time on my hands. So I went in to start an argument. <laughs> and I worked my way into it very skillfully. Not skillfully enough for the nun, I think she was, behind the counter. When she twigged what was going on, she said, this conversation is not to the grace of God. We are, we are closed. Very good girl. She didn't engage. I don't engage anymore. Any funny business, block. And that's the end of it. If you want to make amends afterwards, you can write a letter. <laughs> and we're not meeting for coffee to discuss your remorse. But you can write a letter. Life is, there are, not, there are too many people who are eager for help and who aren't playing games. To play games with people who, in, who are doing it because they enjoy the sensation of dragging someone else in to their drama and making, I know some people, and Bill said he doesn't have boundaries with, I do. I, I should say I have 29 years of, well, since my first Al-Anon meeting as well, and for me, uh, <laughs> I, I need boundaries. Um, so I'm, I'm very careful about who I engage with and how in recovery. I'm not the right person for everyone. And if it doesn't work out, that's fine for me. I'm not going to try and force things anymore. No one needs me as their sponsor. They need a sponsor. If it ain't going in first time, try with someone else. And if you're not enthusiastic, find someone about whose instructions you're enthusiastic. Because I can sponsor 10 people in the time it takes to sponsor one crazy person who... Crazy is fine, as long as it's crazy and enthusiastic. <laughs> but crazy and resistant, you can't... There is nothing you can do to remove someone else's blocks of resistance and unwillingness and where you're simply the latest forum for all of the games. This is within AA, this is outside AA. I don't work with difficult clients anymore. Money will have to come from elsewhere. If it's not straightforward, no. And I don't negotiate with clients. This is the price, there we go. Very, very simple life. Um, were entirely ready. So I was in a position where I'm willing to do anything. And I really understood this, not in my first year, but I think most significantly at around nine, ten years sober, uh, I, I'd had, I won't go into the whole story, but uh, I'd have a very stereotypically ambitious 19, 1920s, ambitious 20s, so I'd got lots of the trappings and it was ashes in my mouth. And I said to God, I will do anything as long as I don't have to go back to that. 
and I gestured backwards to where I'd been. That is step six. It's not pouring over each individual item. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Humility is defined in step five in the 12 and 12 as, I'm going to paraphrase, uh, an accurate perception of who and what we are and a sincere desire to become what we could be. And part of that is recognizing I cannot change my character as an act of the will. Can't be done. However, this is a wonderful principle. If you want to work out which part of the deal is yours and which part of the deal is God's, if it is possible for you to do it, it's your part of the deal. If it's not possible for you to do it, thank you, it's God's part of the deal. Very straightforward. So, um, after step seven, it's not the end of the program. What's my part of the deal? Eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12. And some of the removal of the defects has already been taking place in my experience. Um, resentment. I've heard people say over the years that they've got a persistent resentment and they keep writing inventory again and again and again on the same resentment. And I say to them, well, well, well quite, yes. <laughs> the woman looking exasperated in the second row, and I, I understand the exasperation. Um, writing about a resentment will no more treat resentment than having a diagnostician do a, an x-ray of your broken limb will, will heal the broken limb. It's necessary information. But on page 67, there are instructions. Page 66, there are instructions. There are ideas which I must take on board. The reason I'm resentful in any situation is because I've been trying to have my own way. The only way not to be resentful is to drop the idea that I will be happy if I get my own way. If people who got their own way would be happy. In Western civilization, if you told people 500 years ago how much we have and how much we get our own way compared to how they got their own way 500 years ago, people would say we're in heaven. And a large proportion of society are drugged because they don't like getting their own way, apparently. It's not enough. It never will be. So drop it. Trying to be happy by trying to get my own way in the world, as, as George Carlin says, is trying, it's like a hungry person trying to satisfy their hunger by taping sandwiches to their legs. <laughs> Being sold a bill of goods and it's a fool's errand. So for me to be resentful at Susie or Bobby or Peter because they're not complying with my instructions, they're in the way of me getting my own way, is folly because I wouldn't be happy when I got it. <laughs> but at any one time, if I made a list of things to be grateful for, I could fill a notebook full of them. So the reason I'm, 
unhappy and resentful is not because I haven't largely got my own way. It's because I enjoy the sensation. Because when you're the guilty party, I'm getting rid of my own guilt. Why am I guilty? Uh, unfinished amends. There we go. Um, as someone said yesterday, go through your life starting from now. Do a 360-degree review. Who do you have tension with? Who do you not want, want to walk into the room? There's either forgiveness or there is amends there. And I, so I had, to, I had to drop the demands of others. I had to drop the moralization. Who am I to say that people... Uh, to be punished by my anger. To identify with them when, when they're behaving badly. They usually aren't. The sick man prayer is very patronizing most of the time. Occasionally, it's useful to, re it's a good antidote to the belief that people are genuinely malignant. But it, it is not, very often, and I'll say this, and this is going on tape, and I'm glad. Um, <laughs> it is very often used in AA to rebut legitimate criticism of bad behavior. Oh, the person who criticizes me, they're just sick. No, they've spotted stuff that you should really pay attention to. <laughs> Similarly, love and tolerance. If a group, quite rightly, tries to crack down on sexually predatory or other disruptive behavior for the good of all, and indeed the individual in question who should not be permitted to continue to harm others and thereby deepen their own guilt, Someone will always put their hand up and say, but love and tolerance is our code. It's a, it's a defense against bullying. I'm very cautious of when that line is used in a discussion. Thank you very much. Um, there's an awful lot that happens in the removal of defects before we even get to the question of their removal in step four. Uh, Page 67, the prayers at the top enjoin me to adopt a kind and loving view towards all without exception. Today, there are too many people for me to list, so I just issue general am amnesties on <laughs> a regular basis. Um, I needed to become trustworthy, and to do that, I needed to earn people's trust by apologizing, by paying all the money back. I'm going to say something controversial. I offset my carbon so I don't have as much of an effect on the planet. I look at how I'm affecting everything. And as a result of that, the guilt has gone. When the guilt has gone, there is no one to... Sh there's, there's no need to resent because I don't need to shift my guilt onto someone else because I'm no longer guilty. But where has this kind of original guilt come from? Imagine you're in a heavenly choir singing beautifully and it's the most glorious sound. And Tolkien's Silmarillion is a very good description of just such a phenomenon. Imagine one of the choir, one of the choristers saying, I want to sing a solo. <laughs> and the choir master says, well you can't because I'd have to get everyone else to be quiet. So no. You can be part of everything. You can have a share in the everything. 
and you say, well, everything isn't enough for me. I'll take my tiny little fragment and run away with it. And that's what my whole operation in the world was about, about building a personality for myself. Fool's errand. Vanitas, vanitatum, omnia vanitas, Ecclesiastes. I, these are not new ideas, not ideas generated in AA. In step seven, when I humbly ask God, uh, Don P would say step seven is step three with teeth. We now have more information behind the commitment. So I'm committing to making the scores, if not hundreds of amends, which I've made over the years in eight or nine, and I'm committed to a secret hermit-like existence where it looks like I have a perfectly ordinary life. I do, I'm married, I have a business, I teach the occupation I have. I have friends, I go on trips, I have a normal, I have hobbies. Secretly, I know I'm gonna deal with God and all I have to do is ask God in the morning what to do and get on with it. When I'm doing all of the right things, I'm not doing any of the wrong things, which is the full answer to where the defects go. I don't need to do anything with them, I just need to act right, keep my mouth largely shut, and get on with it. And when I'm doing that, there is no acting out. One last thing. Um, a friend of mine, his uh, sponsor was, was a chap called Father Terry, who d died relatively recently, and he says about the character defects, they're removed, but they're not removed far. <laughs> they always remain within arm's reach. Everything is always there. And so a defect is not as a blot or a stain on me. It's not even one of my limbs. It's simply a tool that I might use, a belief, a thinking pattern in real time or a behavior pattern in real time. Day by day, as I refrain from alcohol, I refrain from those when I'm in my right mind. Thank you for listening.